Indie Votes is a nonpartisan campaign of the Center for Social Concerns, the Rooney Center for American Democracy, and the Constitutional Studies minor at the University of Notre Dame that promotes voter education, registration, and mobilization. Indie Votes fosters conscientious engagement in political and civic life among students. Welcome back to our podcast, Pizza Pod in Politics, a virtual initiative in place of our signature event, Pizza Pop in Politics, during the time of COVID-19. Our goal is to continue educating students post-election about different political issues from a nonpartisan lens with the hopes of fostering a more conscientious and informed student electorate. Today, we'll be focusing on the individual power and meaning of voting as students share personal experiences from their hometowns. I'm Rachel Sabnani. I'm the co-chair of Indie Votes. I'm a science pre-professional studies major, senior that used to live in Howard. Now I live off campus and I have minors in constitutional studies and science, technology and values. And my hometown is Warren, New Jersey. I'm super excited to host today. Indie Votes always works to make voting personal to students, showing the effects that political engagement can have on our own communities and issues we care about. Voting means something different to every voter. So for this episode, we're taking trips to a few ND Votes members' hometowns to hear what voting means to each of them. Join us on our journey around the country and hopefully find some inspiration for why you vote and engage in your own community. First, we head to Grayson, Georgia to meet Grace Skartz, Task Force member and VP Dorm Liaison. Welcome, Grace. Hi, I'm happy to be here. Awesome. Well, let's get started. So my voting story probably would begin um, in Georgia's 2018 election for governor. So that was kind of when I first became aware of what my vote can do and how I can kind of be engaged in my community. So I'm from, as Rachel said, Grayson, Georgia, which is in Gwinnett County, about an hour outside of Atlanta. And I think that a lot of my political consciousness has come from really seeing demographic and political changes in the suburban areas around Atlanta. So I definitely feel lucky to be able to be on the forefront of a lot of interesting dynamics in politics in the past couple of years. So in the past couple of years, we have had a lot of growth and a lot of change in these areas. And with that, I think has come the realization for me and for a lot of people in the area that We really need to hold our leaders accountable to those changing needs of the community. And we've begun to see that we need to make sure we have leaders who care about all people in the community, not just people who vote like them or look like them or come from similar backgrounds, in order to stay connected to how we are changing and how we're growing and becoming more inclusive for um, different kinds of people in our communities. And then this past summer in 2020, I really continued to kind of grow my political consciousness through seeing all the coverage of the Ahmad Arbery shooting and kind of realizing that voting is not everything that I should be doing, but one important step that I can take to make sure that my community is becoming the best it can and serving all of the members um, in the best way that we can. So I think voting is a really important way to make even just a small difference or even start that kind of conversations about what we can be doing. So something interesting about kind of my local voting story. I guess recently, Georgia's been in the news a lot, um, starting with the presidential election this past year. So we voted Democratic for the first time since 1992, as well as electing two Democratic senators for the first time in many years. And you saw Trump asking our Secretary of State, who was also a Republican, to find enough votes to change that outcome and kind of spreading false information about the veracity of these election results. 
And I think that for me was a big impetus to really make sure that our voices are heard because it is more fragile than we think. Our right to vote um, is definitely something that we need to protect and always be conscious of how it's being used and how it's being um, portrayed in the media. So just this past year, we've had a lot of new voting security laws come up in our state legislators. The governor signed into law on March 25th amidst a lot of protest, a new bill that really overhauls a lot of our election processes using the reasoning of voting security. But a lot of commentary has really revolved around the fact that higher turnout in this past election might have been a contributing factor to why Democrats did better than historically they have in Georgia. And a lot of these proposals came from Republicans, and they pretty blatantly tried to limit that kind of high voter turnout. So on that bill passed March 25th, we now need photo ID for absentee ballots, which can be a deterrent for people who don't have photo IDs or if you need to use a printer to get that photo ID um, for your absentee ballot. We saw restricted ballot drop boxes for locations and times, which will especially impact the Atlanta area as far as where people can get access to those drop boxes. Sunday voting for early voting has become optional for precincts, so that will really hurt a lot of historically black churches who have Sunday Souls to the Polls programs where they bring voters to the polls and kind of increase that civic engagement. We can now also have states remove county election officials, and it, the bill actually criminalizes offering water and food to voters as they wait in line. So even these simple things that kind of um, help with civic engagement are being threatened in these really concerning ways. We have limited runoff early voting and then earlier absentee ballot request deadlines and quicker certification deadlines for the precincts to certify their results. So these kind of things are still an evolving story and a lot of a lot more information still coming out as far as what it means, commentary on these issues. But I think it's really important to definitely stay involved and informed about these things because they are affecting the communities and the people we care about. So just this past weekend, we saw some engagement with these policies when the MLB decided to move their all-star game from Atlanta over protesting this bill. And I think the biggest challenge for the future is really just making sure we do stay engaged and kind of have conversations about, do we think these are effective protest methods? Do we want to engage these kind of corporate groups as they get involved more in our politics. But I am, I'm hopeful that because Georgia and these issues have been in the news more recently, we can make sure that people are aware and are aware how they can create fair and more accessible voting process, especially as we do continue to grow and change. And I see um, a lot of hope for that in my hometown and the surrounding areas. That's awesome, Grace. Thank you so much for sharing. It's really exciting to hear about someone who lives in Georgia, which has been you know, in the news in the past year or two a ton. Mm -hmm. um, one question I had was many people have credited Stacey Abrams for the increase in blue turnout this past election year in Georgia. And I was wondering, from your personal experience, had you kind of seen any of these new specific voting initiatives at home that maybe seem different to you than other years? Yeah, that's a great question. So in that 2018 governor's race I mentioned at the beginning, she was running for governor and did lose by a very small margin. But I think something interesting is that she's actually been working on kind of increasing voter accessibility and voter turnout in a lot of underrepresented communities for many, many years, even before that 2018 election. So when we do try to increase these um, civic engagement 
activities, it takes a lot of groundwork and many, many years. It's not just in that one election. It's not just in presidential election years. So that's really interesting to see how her work has built up. And we've seen it kind of go national in a lot of different ways. But I think this year specifically, I've seen a lot more interest for local races, including like district attorneys, school boards, county commissions. And I think that's really important in building that kind of groundwork. So um, her leadership has been pivotal, but there's also a lot of other more local people and other activists who are laying a lot of that foundation. That's awesome. Great to hear. My next question was about the new voting bills and kind of the sense that local corporations have been commenting on the state's legislation. What was your sense of the general vibe at home about, you know, the MLB moving their all-star game out of Georgia and, you know, big Atlanta companies like Delta and Coca-Cola taking a stance on this legislation? It seems kind of a new phenomenon where corporations are taking a stance in the political sphere. Do you think it's been effective at home? That's a really interesting question. And I think it will, again, take take a while to kind of see how a lot of that plays out. But it's definitely interesting to see kind of national commentary on these state bills, because I do think state politics are very important in, again, laying that groundwork and having that kind of um, local engagement. So it's I think, good to see that national interest in these local legislative processes. But from people I've spoken to and kind of people I know, I think the engagement from corporations is mostly appreciated, though there is some concern about, you know, is, for example, the MLB punishing, I guess, the right people by leaving? Because you had a lot of people counting on that all-star game for economic growth, for their livelihoods. So there's a lot to debate, I think, as far as how to most effectively get a message out there and how to make sure you're conscious of all the people that are affected. But I think another interesting point is Atlanta has this kind of idea or this saying from a while back of it's a city too busy to hate. So that kind of plays into the idea that we're more concerned with economic growth than politics or differences, different backgrounds. And I think that's a valuable idea as long as we do keep in mind the impact that those political choices can have and the impact of being sensitive to the ways that these choices and policies have very real effects on people's lives. Um, So it will be neat to see how that kind of continues to play out with corporations being more involved in the state politics. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much, Grace. It was awesome to hear about your hometown in Georgia. Thank you. And now we will head to Jacksonville, Florida, to meet Madeline Ward, Chair of Dorm Liaisons here at ND Votes. Thanks for joining us, Madeline. Yeah, thanks for having me. All right, get us started. What's politics like in Jacksonville? Yeah, so I'll talk about a couple different things. So I'll first talk about what it's like to be a voter with no party affiliation, but then I'll talk a little bit more specifically about what it's like voting in Jacksonville and the surrounding area of Jacksonville, because I don't actually live within the city limits and what it's like generally voting in Florida. So my family is pretty conservative, but they're, you know, always open to different perspectives. My mom has always been a registered Republican, and my dad is also no party affiliation. Um, And my extended family spans the entire spectrum. So I grew up exposed to all different points of view. When I was 16 and got my driver's license, I was actually able to pre-register to vote when I was at the DMV. Uh, because of this thing called the motor voter law. I think it's something that a lot of states have, but I don't think all states have it. But it was super easy because it was like I already had all the right documentation and I was able to register right there. And then right before I turned 18, uh, my voter ID card was actually mailed directly to my house. So I didn't register with a party then, 
but that was more so that I didn't really want to register as a Republican. Uh, but I felt weird registering as a Democrat because I grew up in such a conservative household. And the first time I registered with the party was the 2020 Democratic presidential primary because I knew I wanted to vote in it. And in Florida, it's pretty easy to change your party affiliation. You just have to go online and switch it. And then they'll mail you a new voter ID card. And then later that same year, I was actually became a Republican because of some shady local election stuff that was purposely excluding uh, Democrats and uh, NPA voters through a loophole. So I I grew up I grew up outside of Jacksonville. So we don't it's unincorporated territory. So I don't have a mayor. I don't really have that much local government infrastructure. The most important election is probably the sheriff. And because it's so conservative, uh, my congressional district is actually the 62nd most conservative district in the country. Because it's so conservative, there are only Republicans running for sheriff in my county. And Florida has closed primary elections. But because there are only Republicans running, they were going to let anyone vote for this one race during the primary. And I was really excited about this. I was like, this is really the only one I care about. All the other ones I can vote in the general election, that's fine. But I really wanted to vote for sheriff because I had very strong opinions about who I thought would be a better sheriff. And then the day before the deadline to announce your candidacy to register to run, a write-in candidate actually registered. And this happened in a neighboring county too. So in both of these counties where there are only Republicans running, write-in candidates registered the day before they had to declare their candidacy, which essentially closed the election to anyone who wasn't a registered Republican. And this seemed real shady to me and to the local news. Um, <laughs> so uh, I registered as Republican, was able to vote for sheriff. Thankfully, the candidate I you know, liked more won. But the, what's even shadier is that the neighboring county, the day after the primary, the write-in candidate withdrew from the election. So it's just kind of like this whole thing. But anyway, yeah, so this past year I've been like every party. And aside from the Democrat primary in 2020, um, I've only ever voted by mail, um, which has always been super easy for me in Florida. I know it hasn't been that way for everybody. Some of my friends from Florida have had issues getting ballots. But for me, it's always been super easy. My ballot has always come way ahead of time. I've always had plenty of time to send it back. I can request it online. Yeah, everything in Florida you can do online. I can change my party online, um, and then the local election office just mails me a new voter card. Like I said, I can register online, request my mail-in ballot, and I don't need an excuse to vote by mail. Actually, in 2016, they changed the wording in Florida from absentee voting to voting by mail. So absentee voting, you know, gives you a certain image of based on like this past election and all of the drama surrounding absentee voting. But in Florida, it's just voting by mail. Um, and you don't need an excuse. And this infrastructure was really put together about 20 years ago, I believe. And I might be incorrect, but I'm pretty sure that Republicans were the ones that put it together, which is probably why the Republican supermajority in the state house isn't going to roll it back that much. I do know there are some laws that they're introducing that might roll it back a little bit, but they probably won't do much to it, especially because we do have an older population in Florida, and a lot of them do utilize vote by mail. And as we all know, Donald Trump himself does vote by mail in Florida, so he will not be um, raising any uh, issues with Florida vote by mail anytime soon. But also just like voting in Florida generally, there are lots of things that come to mind. And I think a lot of people around the country have a certain perception of what it means to vote in Florida. For example, like the 2000 election comes to mind with the hanging chads. Those were kind of like a legend in like civics and government classes. We talked about those all the time. Um, in that election. 
But, you know, like I said, like in reality, our election infrastructure is pretty robust. This doesn't mean that there aren't really gross attempts and successes, really, at voter suppression. And a few things that come to mind are parking spaces on college campuses. A few years ago, there was a new rule that was put into place about how many public parking spaces had to be available at a polling site. And a lot of college campuses don't have a lot of public parking. So uh, college campuses were disallowed from being polling places for that brief period of time. And in 2018, we had Amendment 4 passed for our Constitution, which would allow formerly incarcerated people to be able to vote. But our current governor is fighting that with uh, everything he's got. He really does not want formerly incarcerated people to be able to vote. And there is some absolutely insane bonkers gerrymandering. I could talk forever just specifically about my like little corner of Florida, about how crazy the gerrymandering is. So even though like there are all these things that make voting really easy, especially voting by mail, that doesn't mean that Florida's perfect, but it also doesn't mean that we have issues that aren't outside of the realm of possibility for any other state in the country. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Madeline. That was super informative. I think a lot of people have misconceptions about Florida, so it's really exciting to hear about someone who lives there and has experienced all of these different voting changes firsthand. Uh, Thank you also for mentioning your identity as an independent voter. Um, What would you say to other students that are dissatisfied with the two-party system and considering becoming independent or a no-party voter? Yeah, so I'll just talk about, I guess, what it means for me to be an independent voter. So, you know, I know people who are members of each party have, you know, will have the same values that I do and will stay registered with the party for certain reasons. But for me, it's really all about I don't want to necessarily conform myself to something that I don't agree with or I think is insincere. Because I have like lots of really deeply held values and beliefs about what I think is right and wrong and what legislation I think needs to be passed in this country. And I don't believe that either party truly represents that. And so even though I might agree with one party more than the other or even outside of like the two main parties, like I might agree with like a third party more than either of the two main ones, I don't want to conform myself and my values to something that a party is saying. And I don't necessarily want to affiliate myself and my values with a certain party. And so I think that anyone who is, th- is also dissatisfied with the two-party system or considering becoming an independent voter and changing your affiliation, you know, I would definitely say look at your state rules. For me, it's been super easy because I'm able to vote in primaries when I want to because it's so easy to change my affiliation. But for other people, it might be super hard and you might want to be voting in closed primaries, but changing your affiliation requires mail and stamps and all of these things. And it might just not be worth it in that sense, which is totally understandable. And I don't mean to say that anyone who's registered with the party doesn't have deeply held values and beliefs, but just for me personally, I wanted to stay independent. And I definitely think that right now is a really good time to become independent and to think about it because uh, a lot of people are dissatisfied with the two-party system. And if enough people were to decide that, then maybe we could actually really change a lot about the way our country functions. Awesome. Thank you so much for speaking to that. That's really interesting. Another question I had about Florida is you mentioned there's a common misconception that a lot of crazy things go on there politically and with voting. But from your experience, it sounds like it's been super easy to vote and the access 
given to young people for voting has been immediate, especially with you're talking about, you know, getting pre-registered when you get your license, which in Florida is at 16. Has this been your experience that it's been pretty simple, outstanding the hanging chads incident? Yeah, outstanding the hanging chads. Um, I would say for me personally, it's been really easy. And but I don't want to paint this as like my experience is everybody's experience as someone who, you know, was able to register to vote early and didn't have to like go out of my way to do it. And, you know, as someone who's able to just easily request a ballot online and then have it sent to my dorm and then send it back, like it's always been really easy for me. But that doesn't mean it's easy for everybody in Florida. And that doesn't mean that there aren't a lot of issues. So I would say that The infrastructure, yes, it does. It would say that voting is super easy and the young people are able to access the polls very easily. But it's like I was saying, like college campuses have been a target in the past of of voter suppression attempts. There's targeting of, like I said, a formerly incarcerated people in North Florida, where I'm from. Every single liberal voter in North Florida is packed into one district. So it's easy, I would say, like once you figure it out, And if you're able to vote, you know, barring that right having been taken away from you, it's easy. But that I don't want to paint it like Florida doesn't have a lot of issues with voter suppression because it's when we have such conservative leadership, you know, like whoever's in power wants to stay in power. Right. And when we have conservative leaders, they don't necessarily want formerly incarcerated people to vote because, as we know, mass incarceration mostly affects people of color. And people of color largely vote more Democratic. And when we have Republicans in office, they might not, especially in a state like Florida where it's so close all the time, they might not be like, you know, this isn't the top of their to-do list for their legislative agenda. And the same goes for young people. Like the targeting of college campuses is super deliberate. I was looking at a map um, the other day that was showing that if only young people, like 18 to 29, had voted in Florida, Joe Biden would have won by like 30 points or something, which is crazy considering Donald Trump won by like three, which is a larger margin in Florida than there has been in like the last like 20 years. So for my experience, it's been super easy, but there are lots of issues and lots of things that you know, Florida has to improve on is that are issues that a lot of states in the country have to deal with. And while there are lots of crazy things that do happen in Florida, I am not ashamed of Florida, man. There you know, this is something that sadly, like, is a common thing that we ha- we share with a lot of states, issues with voter suppression. Yeah, absolutely. I think we all have a, a ways to go to securing a fairer vote for all Americans. Thank you so much for joining us today and speaking about Jacksonville. Yeah, of course. And now we travel west to San Antonio, Texas, to chat with Michael Morata, the other co-chair of ND Votes. Welcome, Michael. Hello. So I've had the good fortune of uh, not only being represented, but also benefiting from uh, the leadership of some transformational Latinx leaders in my city. Uh, as a lifelong resident of San Antonio, I've been represented by the Castro brothers, Julian and Joaquin. And um, Joaquin was my congressional, uh, is my congressional representative, and Julian was my mayor, and then the former HUD secretary. And like the Castro brothers, I was born and raised in San Antonio. Uh, I'm of Mexican descent. I have a twin brother, and I want to go into public service because of lessons I learned from my family. So the personal benefit I received from one of Julian's decisions when he was mayor uh, was when he instituted Cafe College. Uh, Cafe College provides free test prep and college advice to students and helps prepare them for the ACT and seek out scholarships. 
Uh, and this was huge for me and my family because both of my parents were first-generation college students who filled out their college applications by hand. So when the time came for us to apply to college, we had we had no idea what to do, how to find scholarships, where we to start studying for the exams. And thankfully, people at Cafe College were able to provide some free counseling and advice and allow me to take fully timed and simulated practice exams for the ACT. And without this help, I'm not sure that I would have been able to present as strong as of, of an application as I did to Notre Dame, doing well in the ACT, and then in the future to Duke Law School, where I'll be attending in the fall. So these foundations of transformation that Julian placed in San Antonio really helped me and my siblings reach the next step. And I hope one day I can follow in his shoes to serve the hometown community. I learned from a young age that not all people are given the same opportunities in life, not even the people in your own home. My twin brother Thomas is dyslexic and struggled to learn in our early years of life and education. I remember watching how hard he used to work with our mom every night, just trying to comprehend how to read and what we learned that day in school. And thankfully, my parents were able to recognize the issue and have Thomas tested and diagnosed and diagnosed with a learning disability, and as well as put him in a school that specialized in teaching students with learning disabilities. But my concern is for all the students who do not have the knowledge or the means to recognize learning disabilities and be tested. You know, when I think of vulnerable people, I think of my brother or I think of our grandfather. Our grandfather grew up in a field picking cotton as soon as he could walk. His family lived in a small one-room shack with a dirt floor and one mattress. And I think about the way he dedicated his life to making sure that our family and the, f- the future of our family would be, would be able to do better. You know, he worked hard, served in the military, was missing in action for 93 days in North Korea before finding his way back home. And his survival and hard work is what made us who we are today. But we, we all know that life's not just about hard work. You know, to succeed, you have to work harder than everybody else, but you have to also get every lucky bounce along the way. And the worse your situation that you start out in, the harder it is to receive those lucky bounces and get that benefit of the doubt. And there are people like me, especially back in my hometown, who are not as far along in their family's immigration story yet. You know, instead of living in a generation like I do, where everyone has the opportunity to go to college, they may be trying to become a first-generation college student themselves or have to drop out of high school or go get their GED in order to work and provide for their family. And these are the people that, you know, I want to work for and do my best to provide equal opportunities for. The education system struggles to serve all people. And this can be seen in the higher education attainment rates across different racial and ethnic groups. And the primary reason I got into politics at a young age are the lessons I learned from my family that sparked in me a desire to serve the local community that is a majority Hispanic or Latinx uh, and the entire country as a whole by fighting for vulnerable individuals and advocating for that overhaul of the education system. So some quick numbers. Only 22% of Latinx people in the United States have attained an associate's degree. Only 11% had gone on to earn a bachelor's degree and only 5% went on to achieve a graduate degree. Degree attainment among Latinx Americans trails white Americans by about 25%. Uh, and this is particularly shocking when you, when you think about how there are over 60 million Latinx people in the United States and 61% of them are under the age of 35. And Latinx students account for 25% of the nation's 54 million plus K through 12 students. So given that the demographic is so young and the issues of education and healthcare are so important going forward, it's easy to see that the education system is failing Latinx Americans. And the educational achievement gap can be attributed to a number of social, economic, and educational conditions, uh, such as inadequate social services, families with low human and social capital, few entry-level jobs that provide a living wage and benefits, and schools that lack resources to meet many basic educational needs. And 
education is a right in the United States. And if Latinx Americans cannot count on their own country to provide adequate and equal education to all students, then the trust between these millions of citizens and their country is broken. Uh, there are several areas of study that can be used to focus on this issue. Uh, more people can learn through the academic discipline of Latinx politics. We can take a look at the well-researched academic achievement gaps between racial groups, and then look at the political history of the educational system. There also needs to be an open and honest conversation about the stereotypes, such as language barrier, that prevent schools from focusing on the true issue of educational quality. The unique average age and continuing growth of the Latinx population in the United States means that fixing the issues, if not majorly overhauling the education system, will be vital moving forward. Attaining higher education levels at competitive rates to other ethnic and racial groups will provide the opportunity for communal economic growth and the investment of others. Thank you so much for sharing, Michael. It's really exciting to hear about someone benefiting directly from local government. I think a lot of us overlook the impact of our local government on our community, and that's what this episode has been all about. Also, I appreciate you talking a lot about Latinx politics. I feel like that doesn't get a lot of airtime in our Notre Dame community. And I was wondering if you knew of any professors or organizations on campus that are researching these issues that you're talking about that students interested could get involved in. Absolutely. It's been a lot of fun being able to talk about it. And like you said, this what this, this episode's all about hometowns. And, you know, I certainly wouldn't be here without the leadership of people in my own community. And as far as uh, getting involved and learning more about Latinx politics here at Notre Dame, I would definitely recommend taking classes with Professor David Cortez or Professor Louis Fraga. Professor Fraga is considered a legend in the, in the academic discipline. Both professors are incredible people, and I've had the honor of taking classes with them. Awesome. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. And now we travel back home to South Bend, Indiana, to talk with our very own Marty Kennedy, task force member and Stanford dorm liaison. Welcome, Marty. Thank you so much for having me. This is my uh, first podcast experience ever. Oh, we're so excited to have you. <laughs> so I want to talk a little bit more about a really formative experience in my interaction with local politics, especially in South Bend. One of the biggest things that happened in the past couple years in terms of voting is the Indiana voter purge, which happened in... I think it was 2017 where basically the government purged 500,000 people off the voter rolls. So in St. Joseph County, which includes South Bend, it was 27,000 people. And in Indiana and in St. Joseph County, it was predominantly black and brown communities who were purged. So it was this really crazy kind of insane backdoor logic that really formed my idea of voting, democracy, you know, just civic involvement is really something you still have to fight for. It's not given, especially with my white male privilege. It was something that I did take for granted. And so basically how they did it was if you didn't vote in the past two presidential elections, you were purged from the voter rolls, which was 2012 and 2016. And then they also did this thing where the whole thing kind of the logic was if you move who didn't have the right address on file. So they sent these many, many postcards to people to check to say, hey, did you move? But the problem was they sent it to the address before the people moved. So these people didn't get the postcard. And if they did, it was so small, they might not have even paid attention. And then you were taken out the voter rolls. They didn't tell anyone. So you could have went to the 2018 election and went to vote and be told, sorry, like you are purged. We don't know why. So it was this really crazy voter suppression. I think especially in this time, um, that we're witnessing with voter suppression. This was a really salient example in South Bend. So the community found out about this. The South Bend community found out about this. And um, 
responded with this re-register your right to vote campaign, which was this super awesome thing where all these people came together, the Southwind community came together to learn about this really complex, suppressive, repressive issue and fought back to try to get at least some of the 27,000 people in St. Joseph County re-register or at least get people talking about it so it went further. And so this re-register your right campaign was spearheaded by three women of color who um, I should give credit to and give them the respect they deserve in terms of organizing this because it was so awesome. And it was this kind of really awesome moment of community building and South Bend coming together to fight for our right to vote, for people's right to engage in the South Bend community through elections, and to kind of meet other people who were really active and in tune and cared about this community. So we didn't re-register all 27,000 people. I don't remember the exact number, but we got a lot of people talking about this issue, talking about what the community means in South Bend and how we can come together to solve these complex, difficult issues together. So it was really this awesome moment that spoke to South Bend in general of that we're a community that at least civically fights for each other and we fight for justice and freedom. We're not afraid to come together and really fight for what we believe is just. So that was kind of a really awesome example of what I was involved in in South Bend. That's awesome, especially in such a you know formative time of your youth to see your community mobilized like that. I'm mm-hmm. sure it was really inspiring. Yeah. And I wanted to hear a little bit more about community building in South Bend. I know all of us are a member of the South Bend community, but being able to interact with the community of South Bend as a member of the community and not just a privileged student is something that I think we've all kind of struggled (laughs) to sit on the seesaw and (laughs) straddle between, Um, especially now I'm an off-campus student, um, so I'm even more directly integrated into the South Bend community. So I'd love to hear your take on that and how you've continued to stay involved in the South Bend community as a Notre Dame student. Yeah, I think it's a really complex issue that we could sit here and talk about for days about Notre Dame-South Bend relations. So the biggest thing I tell people is to work with South Bend, not at South Bend. Because I think a lot of Notre Dame people come in super smart and super knowledgeable, especially people who study community building and study community organizing, but come in with this idea that I have the answer and I'm going to tell South Bend what to do. I think the university does this a lot of times with their thinking, right, we have the answer, we're this university, we can tell South Bend how to reorient their community to make it better, right? So there's this dynamic of we have the Golden Dome at Notre Dame and two miles off campus people are starving on the streets without homes and without shelter and without family or community. So it's this interesting dynamic. So my advice to people is always work with us. Start by talking with us, interacting with us. And when I say us, I mean people in South Bend. And finding out kind of what we're about. Go to community meetings, go to restaurants and watch things online and just kind of see who we're about so you can better understand how to interact. So there's so many organizations like the Center for Civic Innovation, Imani Unidad, La Casa de Amistad, the Group Violence Intervention Program with Goodwill, and so many more that are already doing the work. So I encourage people to approach South Bend in that way when they're working with this community. Awesome. And for your experience, how have you continued to stay involved in the community since coming onto the Notre Dame side of the relationship? (laughs) Yeah, it's really difficult. And I think especially with COVID, it's made that dynamic even um, harder. But I've been involved with a lot of election campaigns um, with the St. Joseph County Democrats, whether that be mayoral or 
city council or presidential with um, Mayor Pete this past summer and earlier. I've also worked, like I said, with the Center for Civic Innovation, which works a lot on the southeast neighborhood of South Bend doing kind of community development, sustainable projects. I've done a couple things with criminal justice and working with community action groups, especially in the summer of 2018, but also just going to, like I said, even with COVID, but like going to restaurants or looking things up or watching a live stream of a community meeting are ways that I kind of stay in tune with South Bend. Absolutely. Thanks so much for sharing your insight on the South Bend community and how to best interact within it as a Notre Dame student and resident are incredibly helpful for those looking to further their involvement in the community. And also, we could not finish this episode without mentioning our hometown hero, Mayor Pete Buttigieg, who now has the much fancier title of Secretary of Transportation. How did Mayor Pete affect change in South Bend, both on a policy level and a community level in your uh, experience? Yeah, we can't talk about South Bend without talking about him. On a policy level, right, we could go into all these details. 